Southwest Tech Daily podcast. Hello, hello. Welcome to our special roundup episode where we revisit some of our favorite interviews from the past year. I'm Fiaz Khan, and with me is the ever insightful Robert Hillier. Oh, me. Oh, thank you, Fiaz Khan. It's been an incredible year of conversations, and today we're bringing you highlights from five interviews that left a lasting impression on us. Right, let's start with Agile on the Beach. We spoke to Gary Hunt, who's Software Cornwall's event manager, and he's currently looking for speakers for Agile on the Beach 2024. Yeah, and being a speaker for Agile on the Beach means you can relive your university days as you're put up at Falmouth University's Penryn campus. There's also a beach party on the last day with everyone who was there. And what a lovely place to do a bit of networking. I asked Gary who his favourite speaker was this year. Alan Kelly, obviously, is a fantastic speaker anyway. He is on the speaker committee. I am a little bit biased, um, but having only ever got to speak to Alan over Zoom, uh, and this was my first time in about two or three years of getting to actually meet Alan in real life, um, and I really enjoyed the bits of Alan's talk that I saw. He was He's such an engaging and interesting speaker in what could be a very boring topic. Um, so he does a fantastic job of that. So there was a great talk also from a speaker called Arta, and he started off uh, playing his ukulele as people were walking in. And, and I was instantly suspicious, but it ended up being fantastic. And he's another, uh, you can tell, a very polished, a very practiced and a really great speaker. And it's just great to have that level of person uh, you know, with us. And, and from the community side of things, uh, we had Emily King, who was talking about how to unlearn writing. Um, and I remember seeing her do one of her first talks about uh, about 18 months ago. And it was just really great to see the progression of uh, how much better she's got. It was great the first time I saw her speaking and now she's even better at it. So it's it's great to see the progression of speakers that you know with Angela Beatrice. For me, it's, a, it's a nice that we have a mixture of really professional and really kind of ready to go speakers and that kind of pipeline of up and coming speakers coming in through through these events. I love how you said um, you were instantly suspicious of the guy with the ukulele. That's hilarious. <laughs> that would be as well. I would be, I'd be like, oh, why does he need a gimmick? But actually, you know, it does work. So it, even yeah. if you're a good speaker, sometimes it's good to get people's attention, right? It, it absolutely works. And he brought the ukulele to the beach party as well. Oh, lovely. Gary, how have you seen uh, the event change over the years in terms of the content, the attendees, people's expectations? If you know, if, if you if you go back a decade, how would it how how has it evolved? It's a, that's a bit of a difficult question because I've been attending probably for about five or six years and running the event for the last two or three. Um, but I, I know from you know uh, from feedback and other people, you know, in the biggest way that it has changed is it has got exponentially bigger you know we, we've gone the original event almost uh 12 years ago now was about 100 or so people and we we average anywhere between 450 to 500 people depending on depending on the day and things like that so size it has grown i think uh that has helped us to attract some really big names in in this agile kind of space i know all of our keynotes anybody you know, a quick Google, if you didn't know about those people, those those keynotes were really well thought of and really, uh, really made people quite excited to come along. And I certainly for the last two or three years, we've been in a place where we've been able to attract those those big name keynotes. And I think the effort that we put in and the professionalism that, that goes in and around the event, it doesn't feel like some little event in Falmouth University, which it very much could do. It feels like a really polished, really professional event 
um, that is well worth the ticket price and 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 there's real value in in coming to that, which is a really difficult thing to do for for any event, least of all an, an event this size. Gary Hunt from Agile on the Beach, which is happening on July 4th and 5th, 2024 in Cornwall. Go find Gary on LinkedIn if you'd like to be a speaker next year. It's Gary with two R's. Right. Another guest that comes to mind is Liam Brown. He's a seasoned esports executive from the Pittsburgh Knights in the USA. He talked to us about the world of esports and its impact on education. Yeah, and I spoke to Liam as Tech Southwest had just finished its second esports festival with Exeter College. And what really stood out for me from Liam's point of view was about esports, not just about the games, but gives people an opportunity to join a field with huge and diverse job opportunities. Right. I mean, I guess we already know this, but we never really think about it because esporters professionals in the esport fields, I've just coined that, they need to know how to brand and to publicize themselves. And after speaking to Liam, I felt like maybe the next step was to create tailored courses to nurture future gamers. Yeah, and that was part of our conversation. He told me how higher education really needs to step up and do a better job in keeping up with emerging technology and especially in the field of esports. Higher education has kind of been late to the boat as far as gaming and esports because they merely use it as a tool for student engagement and um you know to to gain like a student applications in in and their that's their main source of income so they kind of look at it as a way to pacify the students almost now i'm not saying that that that's all a bad thing but I don't think that they're approaching it with all of the the right reasons. So um, and and also like a lot of these, this this the argument for student athletes and stuff like that is just like they're used by the schools as a media tool, and that's kind of something that we're seeing now. Um, despite the fact that you know we the uh, over here in the states we have. Um, a bunch of different collegiate organizations and one of them that runs specifically esports is NACE or National Association of Collegiate Esports. Um, kind of kind of shrouded in mystery as far as how they're overall helping the the collegiate scene. And uh, it's interesting as well when you mentioned the, uh, the, the, the Steelers there. So like any large sporting organization, the people who take to the field are 1%, aren't they, of what it actually takes to run yeah. An organization and a successful sports club. So, did you were you were you surprised when, or, or did you know, or were you, were you surprised when you saw the the breadth and depth of not just talent but also opportunities available for people working within a sector like this? And it wasn't just about the play; it was everything else that goes behind it and the opportunities available that that you've then been able to work in. Was that something that you knew about before you you'd you'd engage with uh, with the company? I so I had I, I've always heard of different or the esports teams that have had investment from professional sports organizations or perhaps hedge funds and investment funds, but I never seen it play out in real life. So I when I was doing my research into the Knights, I found out that they had worked with the Steelers and the Pirates and and Wiz Khalifa. But what I didn't know is that all of the major sports teams in Pittsburgh, as well as Wiz Khalifa and his Taylor gang, were our strategic partners with and original investors in the Knights. So they got a lot of the larger professional entities in the city that they were based in 
to invest in them very early on. And I was able to come in and, and help strengthen those relationships and, and be a part of a lot of really cool experiences. So I think reading about some of these relationships that you hear about in the media versus seeing them play out in real life. I mean, as with anything, it's like night and day. It's such a cool experience walking on to the Steelers stadium and just saying hi to like some of the professional players, which mind you are massive human beings, like in physicality and also in like all aspects of the character. But it's, it's really cool. Just kind of like the experience that plays out in, in this specific situation. And did you know when you first started to think about pursuing it as a as a career, all the avenues and opportunities that were that were open to you across the whole? You talked about the being the uh, in content creation and in in data analysis, all, all of all of the other aspects of a career that you could find yourself doing within esports and gaming. No, I I went in not knowing where my what my official title was going to be or what role i was pursuing i just knew that i wanted to come in and bring people together and i didn't know that was going to connect me to professional uh stick and ball sports organizations rappers you know fashion designers i didn't know that there was all these other parts that it was going to connect me to but i feel like I kind of stuck to my guns and, and followed what I really believed in. And it kind of led me down this really cool path. And like, I'm one example of, of that. And I'm not saying like esports is the answer for everybody, but it worked out for me. And I think um, this space is consistently growing. And I think there's a lot of cool things that it can do for a lot of people. Do you think if you, uh, if you go um, below the college and university system in the U S do you think amongst um, high school or, or junior school do you think there's there's any awareness or is there increasing awareness of the opportunities of, available within this sector yeah oh man i i love this question so the two big kind of scholastic or education organizations here in the united states are nasif and nace nace obviously is a the collegiate entity but nasif is the national uh association of scholastic esports federation or something along those lines and that takes care of specifically middle school and high school so when we're talking about esports and gaming in comparison to traditional sports that path to pro or that kind of nurturing of the next generation of talent is in its infancy with these organizations and they're making it relatively easy for schools and the student body to be a part of these larger esports and gaming you know tournaments and depending on which game titles the students want to compete in they're able to offer that uh, as a um, as a competitive title but i think that it's gaining traction the students themselves are constantly experiencing an influx of communication from the professional side again esports one of the reasons it's so popularized and it's been able to grow is because it's so accessible you're able to watch it on your phone, laptop, computer, for free on any platform. You don't have to pay for any specific streaming services. The professional events themselves are very easy to, to get into uh, as far as from like a viewership angle. So uh, because of how accessible it is, people are constantly aware of what the pros are doing. As far as emulating that in you know middle school, high school, college, that remains to be seen in my opinion, just because these uh, education institutions are a little bit behind the curve as far as um, adopting that as, uh, pr as like an experience that they wanna provide for the students. If you were 12, 13, 14 year old, 
boy or girl living in living in Pittsburgh or living in Chicago or living in Dallas and you said to your parent or your teacher you know I've 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 looked into this I understand you know what's happening I understand the growth and opportunity around sports and gaming I think I could forge a career there do you think they that that even now would not be looked upon as a as a as a as a serious pathway or the fact that they might even not have the knowledge of how to help that particular student find their way within that pathway you mentioned about you followed a traditional um a traditional university education would that still be seen as 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 the the kind of guidance that would be given by by most people to a question like that no that's a that's a great question i think that back in 2019 when the world saw the first like Fortnite world cup and i think uh, Duga, he won at the age of 16. And the I, I think that in order to be a part of this space, you just have to have down what your plan is and combine that with a, a level of um, keeping an open mind. So I think that it's very rational to pursue it as a career, but you have to be open to all the possibilities that can occur. You have to be ready for pivoting between being strictly a, a competitive player to also creating content and providing that uh, personality that people are drawn to and building the brand around your online persona so that people Again, that you you give your fan base something to uh, to belong to. So, it, esports is a little bit more complicated to pursue, just because there's a lot more digital side to it. You have to like fan base management and things along those uh, those lines. And consistent uploading is another thing that you got to stay constant with. So, it's it's a uh, what I would say is that it's a little bit more all encompassing as opposed to the traditional sports side where you can just be a really, really good player and get picked up by these teams. Versus in esports, you can be a really, really good player but have like a really bad following and you might not get picked up by your first pick of organizations. You know, the, the, you have to, when you're recruiting, like when we recruit, we look at talent in the game, overall following and the that person themselves and and how their personality vibes in with us as an organization. And and I can tell you a lot of different esports entities look at recruiting just like that. Whereas on the traditional side, they just look at sheer talent in the sport. So um, I think that it's it's very much a rational career as far as helping your family member or your student pursue that career. It is a little bit harder because <laughs> what because like on the traditional side, it's like, oh, I want to be a professional basketball player. OK, we're going to sign you up for these specific camps. Well, on this side, it's like I want to be a professional gamer or a professional esports athlete, it's like, okay, well, you have to work on not only increasing the number of hours you're practicing in the game, we also have to work on your peripheral skills, such as your aim, your movement. We also have to work on consistent uploads. Uh, we also have to work on your digital, your branding. Uh, what pl platforms are you on? Uh, we got to work on all these different things. And, and, it, and, it, and it makes you understand why a careers advisor might not want to get involved in that kind of conversation. Because that's very difficult, isn't it, for people who have had a traditional academic upbringing? That's this is this is this sits way outside people's skill set and people's knowledge. Yeah, I think you put it perfectly. Like this is outside of a lot of people's knowledge, so they might just 
strike it down as a possibility for the future instead of like putting forth the research and, and the time that it takes to understand the space when you want to enter it so they might say oh okay well go get your degree first or or they might say something out of love as a way to have something to fall back on should this not work out because they don't understand so much of it as opposed mm -hmm. to perhaps getting them into the the path to the the smaller path to pro environment that we've discussed and and helping them edit videos and things like that it's it's a lot harder that's liam brown an esports professional from the pittsburgh knights in the usa and the accessibility and variety of roles in esports along with the potential for integration for steam subjects really opened my eyes same Next up, we chatted with Sarah Manda from Let Us Grow, a company making waves in sustainable aeroponic farming. Yeah, aeroponic farming. So the concept of vertical farms is really exciting. And Sarah's insights shed light on the importance of increasingly environmentally friendly farming practices. That was something that was really fundamental to us in um, working within the controlled environment agriculture space. So what controlled environment agriculture allows you to do is farm completely independently of the environment that you're in. So whether the sun is shining or not, whether there is water or not, whether you have fertile soil or not, you can put a vertical farm or a greenhouse that's using um, aeroponic technology um, in that environment and start growing there. And in some places that, that's never gonna make sense. Like in, in sort of Southern Spain, you're probably gonna be much better off growing outdoors. Uh, you have an abundance of, of sunshine, relatively fertile land. Water is a little bit of an issue, so you know a little bit of hydroponics might not be might not go amiss. But in other places, sort of like the Middle East, for example, where it's incredibly hot, there's um, a dearth of natural water resources. Or uh, if you're looking at places where you've got polar night, very little daytime, these kinds of interventions can be incredibly useful. Cities, again, um, fertile land is at a huge, huge premium. So one of the things that we really wanted to do is kind of diversify. Agriculture and sort of um, break it up from having very intense pockets globally, uh, sort of like Almeria, uh, where you're sort of feeding whole continents um, off of one piece of land, which is incredibly extractive, and kind of um, spread it out a little bit. Now we've we've taken two different approaches to that. Um, we've looked at being very 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 localized with our container farms and sort of putting them directly into communities, directly into cities. Um, so this is our, our drop and grow offering, which puts um, aeroponic technology into a 40 foot shipping container. And these can be very localized. They can go absolutely anywhere. Um, and then we're also looking at a much larger scale as well. So um, building sort of commercial scale greenhouses with our aerop aeroponic rolling bench technology. Now, the reason for doing these two different scales is um, you do have economies of scale when you grow grow bigger as a farm so you can serve a much wider area but still keep it local so still keep it sort of nationalized um, which is actually something really important like we're always um particularly with fresh produce um things like salads and herbs and berries we're actually flying that produce and when people talk about food miles there's, there's actually quite a lot contained within that expression now if you're shipping a banana by boat it's actually not that much of a problem the amount of carbon emissions that are emitted um through boat transport um, aren't that much of an issue but as soon as you introduce air travel it becomes a big big problem because of the avi aviation fuel um, so it's really those sort of like delicate perishable crops that we're looking to replace we're not looking to replace anything that's sort of coming by ship 
So you mentioned that um, you don't need a massive amount of land, et cetera, to, to create aeroponic farming. But I wonder how expensive is it as technology? And then also in that case, if it's very expensive, does that cost or that cost inevitably will go to the consumer, um, which in countries like the Gulf uh, in the Middle East is, is fine, but within Ethiopia or Tanzania, places that, that don't have great soil, um, then what do you do? There. So at the moment, there's there's really no getting away from it. Vertically farmed produce most of the time is a bit more expensive. And there are sort of lots of factors to do that to do with energy, to do with sort of the efficiencies at the moment. So it's a relatively new industry. It's, it's kind of in its infancy. And you can liken it to, I guess, a smartphone. So I remember when smartphones first came out, they were only for um, high flyers, rich and powerful business people. Um, and now it's a uh, it's a technology that absolutely everybody has in their pocket. It's very affordable and it becomes a necessity. And we're kind of we're along that technology curve at the moment um, as we're as we're still um, sort of making those efficiencies and sort of working out the best ways to do it. One of the things that's going to be really fundamental for pushing it forwards, for improving the both um, cost of it and also the sustainability is integrating with renewable technologies. Um, so what we want to do is integrate with renewable energy um, and sort of bring that sort of um, and package it up with vertical farming and there are a lot of really exciting opportunities to do that and it will both bring the cost down and improve the sustainability so something you should never really be doing is running a vertical farm on non-renewable electricity and um, once you do that its carbon footprint is actually much higher than produce grown outside and that's not something that we want to be a part of oh that's really interesting that makes a huge difference what's what, uh, so actually that that raises its own risk isn't it what do you what do you do it sounds a bit james bondish but what do you do to stop this falling into the wrong hands mm -hmm. as it were you know when people start to see the success and the ability of this to produce food at home which is difficult to get hold of normally how how are, how are you going to stop people deciding that this is they're going to enormously increase the scale of farming on this way plugging it into the gas mains or coal-fired power station as opposed to what you're doing now so one of the most important things we found is just supporting people through that journey um because it actually can help you bring your costs down um there's no um sort of machiavellian ha 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 i'm going to do it in the way that's going to destroy the planet if the economical thing to do is integrate with renewables uh, so a huge part of what we do is just support people along that journey. We have um, some connections with Octopus Energy, trying to help um, anyone buying what, some of our technology from setting up with them. Um, right the way through to we're uh, connected with a project called VFAST, which is looking at different mechanisms for how to integrate with renewables. Um, again, connected with District Eating helps people co-locate with renewables um that are available in the areas that they're looking to set up or maybe even choose a site specifically for the renewable integrations that they're going to then have access to that can lower their costs so for us it's about making things as easy as possible for people at the end of the day people can make their own business decisions but we've just got to make the most environmentally friendly thing also the most economical thing to do as well brilliant where would you see aeroponic farming in the next five years maybe even the next three years because i think it's growing so quickly um what would what would be the ultimate success i think the the next big thing isn't it doesn't feel as exciting i think to people outside of the industry as um 
as where we look like we are now. What I actually think we're going to see is a huge amount of adoption of it in the greenhouse sector. So a huge amount of our fresh produce comes from greenhouses already. And a lot of those systems run on hydroponic systems. But because aeroponics has these efficiencies, you can grow so much faster. You can reduce the amount of water you're using. Uh, it's kind of a no brainer to bring it into greenhouses if you can. Um, and this is something that hasn't really been available for quite a long time. So something that we've done is change how aeroponics is delivered um, to the plants. Previously, aeroponic technology used to fire um, water and fertilizer through very, very teeny tiny nozzles. And it was that high pressure that aerosolized it. And now that introduced some system complexities, maintenance issues, um, and made it quite difficult to bring up to an agricultural scale. Um, and what we've done that is a little bit different is we have created the aerosol through ultrasonics. So essentially we use sound waves to shake the water until it disperses into a mist. And by doing that, we can spread it over a much, much, much larger area. And this sort of this innovation with our technology, I think, is going to allow it to come into greenhouses. And I actually think that's going to be the most exciting thing in aeroponics, even though if maybe if you're outside of the industry, greenhouses don't sound as exciting as vertical farms, which can be a bit sci-fi, you've got the pink lights, you've got all the stacks. But I think that's where we're going to see real change in our food system and we're going to see these real huge efficiencies at scale. That's Sarah Munda from Let Us Grow, which really caught our attention with their revolutionary approach to indoor farming and making technology that's more accessible and hopefully cheaper in the future, especially for countries with fewer resources. Okay, our fourth interview was with the inspiring Dr. Jenny Bailey, who is an immunologist and CEO of Ferex, which is focused on improving gut health. This was personally important to me because I have Crohn's disease and regularly suffer with gut issues and you know swelling and bloating and she really helped me talk through those issues yeah dr bailey she shared her expertise in developing the probiotics to aid individuals with chronic inflammation like you and touching on her own personal connection to her work and it's remarkable how scientific advancements can have such an obvious and immediate and meaningful impact on people's lives Myself and my co-founder had a, a chance conversation in the corridor about why don't probiotics work in people with chronic inflammation? We came up with this idea that maybe we could do something about this and find something that would work during periods of active inflammation or, or stress. And I like to describe this as it was an unfunded side hustle for many years. It was something that we were both really curious about, but didn't have the funding to do it, but we kept on working on it. And that's where the, the lead product that we've taken into Ferex was born. We set up Ferex in 2019 as a spin-out company from the University of Bristol to really sort of focus on these microbiome-based treatments for active gut inflammation. I'm going to ask you, if I may, uh, a layperson's question. So do forgive me. <laughs> Please do. No. Um, so there's obviously a lot of people working in this field. This is yes. stuff. That, this is stuff that we know about. There's every. I mean, I'm gonna. I'm. I'm gonna sound extremely lay. So do forgive me. <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. That's fine. But tablets and yogurts and, and goodness knows what else. Yeah. How did you manage to find something that hadn't been found before? Very simply, it's because nobody's looked for it before. We came up with this hypothesis that the reason why the conventional probiotics don't work in people who have active inflammation or are stressed, we came up with this idea that it's all down to iron. So if you have an actively inflamed gut, you've got loads of iron washing around in your gut. And iron's really good for us but it has to be in the right places. And when it's washing around in your gut, 
it can be helping some of the more harmful bacteria to survive. In comparison to that, the species that are conventionally used as probiotics, things like lactobacilli and bifidobacteria, they can't use iron to grow. So when you've got lots of iron washing around in the gut, those probiotics can't survive. So we thought if we could find something that could use iron uh, as a nutrient, it can survive in that environment and it can have a beneficial effect. I actually have Crohn's disease and this is like a really interesting discussion to me. I used to be vegetarian for 10 years and then had to stop being vegetarian because I couldn't absorb anything Mm -hmm. at all. Now I eat meat because obviously it's just, it's just quicker into my system. And then it also means Mm -hmm. I don't fall down every five minutes. I don't stay in bed. But if you were someone who didn't want to eat meat and wanted to now be a vegetarian, like in my case, again, would this work in lieu of that? So I think it would need to be in combination with something else. And I think, again, it's the key thing here is the iron. If you're not able to absorb the iron from a vegetarian diet, then you need it in sort of vast quantities as, as you get in, a, in, in by eating meat. We know that taking oral iron supplements can sort of exacerbate gut conditions. So sometimes that's not always very helpful. But we see this as a product that could be taken alongside those oral iron supplements that can reduce the uh, the unwanted side effects of taking the iron supplements. It can help to, to keep your gut healthy whilst you're taking those supplements. Okay, so um, you mentioned as well that it's something that is able to help iron be absorbed correctly, even during times of stress and, and flare-ups. It doesn't help the iron to be absorbed. What it can do is it can use the iron. So the issue that we've got is most conventional probiotics can't survive when there's loads of iron washing around, so they can't have a beneficial effect. So we know that our strain has anti-inflammatory properties and it can survive in that environment. So it's not necessarily going to help you absorb the iron, but it will help to reduce your symptoms, which then helps your gut function more normally as well. So you will be absorbing things better. And how long does it take for for? this to work what's what's the treatment plan it's, it's really interesting actually you know i'm sure you're aware with the vast majority of, of treatments for things like inflammatory bowel disease you generally have to take them for eight weeks and see how you get on if it hasn't worked by that point then you'll move on to something else we've recently been conducting a trial of, of this product in people who have who have gut symptoms and in, in, in these individuals, we see that almost 70% of people report feeling better within just two weeks of taking the product. Going back a little bit. So as an academic, a working academic within the university and having access to, to the research methods that you do, yes. what, is the pro- what is the process from having a discussion with your colleague to <laughs> being able to make this work and think, you know what, we actually might have a, a commercial product on our hands here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my my colleague and co-founder, Dr. Tristan Cogan, is a microbiologist and he is an avid collector of bacteria. Anything that he thinks may be interesting at some point, he will stash and put in a freezer. So he has hundreds and hundreds of different isolates of bacteria to use. And we came up with sort of a blueprint. What would we like to see in a in a new probiotic that could function in this environment? And then we went to his freezers and we pulled out his culture collection and we started screening with about 200 different isolates to identify anything that had sort of the suitable characteristics. First and foremost, 
we looked for things that could survive in an iron-rich environment. And then we started looking at in vitro tests, looking at how these things might behave in the gut. How might they impact on, on gut function? Might they reduce inflammation? We looked at safety as well then, you know, antimicrobial resistance and it is a huge problem. We didn't want to use anything that could potentially introduce antimicrobial resistance into a, into a gut microbiome community. So we took them through this screening process and we came out with a couple of strong candidates. We then put one of them through a, a model of colitis. It's a mouse model of colitis. And in that mouse model, we saw that this product was able to reduce clinical signs of disease. So it reduced uh, body weight loss and it reduced gastrointestinal bleeding, which are two of the key signs of, uh, two of the key symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease. And that was our eureka moment. That was when we thought, my goodness, this thing really works. You know, it performs in, a, in our lab tests. And then we've put it into you know, a, a model system where we've got some fantastic data, data that's equivalent to that scene of uh, licensed inflammatory bowel disease drugs. So at that point, we thought, wow, we need to get this out there. We need to do something with it. Um, and how does someone get it? How can we start using it? Back end of last year, we launched a food supplement product called Ferrocom, and that's available to buy from our website. So that product contains this uh, bacteria that's been through all these trials that's shown these beneficial effects. So yeah, anyone can go on there and buy it for themselves now. All right. And uh, so it is, it's not a prescription. Uh, it's not available it's on not the NHS. Prescription. Not as yet. So our ultimate aim is to take this through clinical trials and have as a prescribed drug but because of the safety profile of this product we've immediately been able to launch it as a food supplement so people can get it straight away you've had some quite significant funding deep bridge capital have mm-hmm. been quite big investors yes. how, how how easy did you find it to explain what you had to to people who whose, whose background obviously is not in the same field as yours no absolutely and and this has been one of the things it's been the getting our messaging right and i think it's bringing it home to that personal message i mean you know you say yourself you suffer from Crohn's disease, but this is also suitable for people who have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Now, 15% of the global population suffer from irritable bowel syndrome. If you don't have it yourself, you'll know someone who does. So this is something that impacts so many people. And we have a solution that sort of can really easily help people to feel better. And I think many people could see the benefit in that. Dr. Jenny Bailey from Ferrix, who have developed a probiotic supplement to improve gut health. Next up, we spoke with Zeke Steer and Jackie Arnold from Millbotics. They're creators of smart socks designed to track health indicators in dementia patients. And the story behind these smart socks, it was inspired by Zeke's great-grandmother's experience with dementia. It's so heartwarming and so innovative. He talked about the challenges that his family had had and it, I guess it really inspired him to help with the creation of this. And the technology they've developed brings seriously needed support to caregivers and families who are dealing with their loved ones who have dementia. So actually our first product, which we're calling Discovery, is targeted at research around not just dementia, but various aspects of aging. And we recognize that one of the challenges with this kind of research is getting somebody to comply with using a wearable. Um, Our partners are um, based at Imperial College London, the UK Dementia Research Institute, and they've been trialling a range of different wrist-worn devices and finding that people with dementia simply won't use them. So getting something like a sock 
out there that people can use, that can engage with, that can enjoy. Um, and ultimately that leads to data that is uh, a value for understanding that progression of dementia and the symptoms uh, will be extremely valuable and, and may yield new insights. Yeah. yeah. And also the, the app that accompanies the, the version um, that would be used in, in care settings, um, that has an electronic diary of the person's distress. So it actually is able to store all the information about the time of, of, of the distress. Um, the care is able to input what they believe triggered that um, distress, as well as the, the specific behaviour that was displayed, as well as the, the support that was provided. So it also provides um, an analysis of somebody's distress for clinicians to help to, to support the person better. Mm, as well as families, uh, linking this yes, back to yeah, my great-grandmother yeah. again. One yeah. of the reasons that she became so distressed is because my family simply didn't understand that her aggression and her symptoms were part of her experience with dementia, and they didn't know how to respond to that. So through the app, we can use it as a training tool, help educate people that this is a facet of dementia that can be managed if the appropriate interventions are, are introduced and you know, that the triggers are identified and treated early, which is exactly what we're doing with the smart socks. Yeah. And I suppose because there's, there are so many different um, areas uh, of interest around this technology, which is reflected in, in, in the backing that you've had, at what stage did you realize just how significant a, a, a market gap that you'd, that you'd found here? I think for me, um, and I think for many of our of the people who are partnering with us. I think as soon as Zeke um, approached me, we, we met when Zeke was still doing his PhD and I was at the time working for a health and social care organisation. And he approached me with his idea. And the more that we talked through that idea, the more it, it just seemed like one of those light bulb moments as, you know, in terms of why has somebody never designed something like this before? Because I could see an immediate need for it and, and that was based on both my personal and professional experience and that's also um, been replicated in in the vast majority of people who have approached us um, in terms of the organizations that we are um, working with to evaluate the, the socks further and where are you guys based <laughs> so we have offices in bristol we're um actually quite a remote team uh, so i i'm originally based in uh, near oxford but i commute into bristol and Jackie's in Wales. And we also have wow. people in the north of England. We have people around London. So, yeah, we, we are quite distributed. That's yeah. amazing. A nice national presence. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's really good. Is there um, anything around the, the, the Bristol in particular, the burgeoning tech scene that's been useful? in terms of the, the increased clustering around health tech that's that's coming out of, uh, of both universities? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, SetSquared has been uh, extremely valuable. We are a SetSquared member company. They are really part of that health tech cluster and understanding how that can be developed and, um, and recognised, really, uh, alongside FutureSpace as well, where we have an office. So we, we've had a lot of support. I think... Um, we are raising investment at the moment and we're finding it difficult in the prevailing climate. Again, being in Bristol, which is, I believe, the third ranked um, centre for investment in the UK, is very helpful. But we do need to do more work to get outside of Bristol and raise awareness. And, uh, you know, really, that's one of the reasons why we're here today. So looking, looking further afield and looking, looking globally, 
are there any international competitors? Because obviously it's the case, isn't it? With every with every fantastic idea, it's it's hard to believe that somebody hasn't done this before. Um, but uh, so is, is this is this something else that you've uh, that you you found anybody else doing? Yeah, so no, there, there, there are currently no direct competitors at all. So this is a, a very unique product. So we, we have um, a patent pending on the, the AI um, in particular, but there, there isn't anything at all um, that there are various devices that um, are used for fall detection, for example, but nothing that is looking at the, the specific um, areas that, that we are in terms of alleviating and, and supporting somebody's distress and anxiety. And who would you say is your ideal client? Is it individuals? Is it care homes? Is it hospitals? Like where, where would you promote we, We're initially marketing to businesses, so so care organizations initially, but we, we do see very much a market with maybe a, a very slightly um slightly different product um to individuals um and people um also living in in the community so it has a very wide market um and also obviously potentially a a global market because you know dementia mental health and learning disabilities are are you know a, a global um issue um and just just finally for me uh, what other uh, technologies that currently exist uh, so what other partners do you think you might be able to work with to enhance and include work that's already been done in uh, in in similar fields and similar research around this area that's a very good question yeah there's a real push at the moment to uh, get care organizations to adopt digital technologies and really there are probably going to be several preeminent uh, digital social care platforms that come out of that and we're very keen to integrate with them over a longer term so you know, it's really important that you can tie together different kinds of sensor data. Maybe you've got environmental sensor data, uh, things around the environment that that person is situated in, alongside the physiological data that you might collect from the socks, alongside situational data to do with you know, what that person's currently engaged in, what sort of activities they're doing, how they've been interacting with people around them. But the more data you can bring together, the more insights you can generate, the better you can support that person and, and uh, aid their care. So really, the long term proposition is that we will be integrating with some of these systems to provide uh, really a, a crucial piece of that puzzle. Zeke Steer and Jackie Arnold from Milbotics there about their smart socks. Um, amazing technology. In fact, all of it has been brilliant. What a year we've had chatting to these brilliant, clever, incredible people with their amazing inventions and all right here in the southwest it's been a pleasure speaking to everybody and i feel so well informed about some of the extraordinary work that's taking place and finding out all about it it really has been a wonderful year and i also i feel very lucky to be part of this showcase that we call a podcast thank you all for joining us on this journey thank you for giving us such great results this year on our podcast and Here's to another year of insightful conversations. Until next time, bye. Bye. The Southwest Tech Daily Podcast. 